Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest. September 14th, 2023, the Impeach Em All, Let God Sort Em Out edition. <laughs> I am David Plotz of CityCast in Washington, D.C. That wan chuckle came from John Dickerson of CBS Primetime in New York City. Hello, Juan Dickerson. How are you spelling Juan in that context? Or is that the genius of your early morning repartee that it's both J-U-A-N and W-A-N? It is. Thank you. Also with us, Emily Bazelon the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School in New Haven. Hello, Emily. Hello, David. Hello, John. This week on the GapFest, the brazen and shocking scheme to impeach a new Wisconsin Supreme Court justice to protect Republican power in the state. And then the pathetic and not very shocking scheme to impeach the U.S. president to protect Kevin McCarthy's power in the House. And then what do the latest polls tell us about a Biden-Trump race, especially in battleground states? Now we say battleground states. We don't say swing states, right? Yeah, for good reason. Battleground states. Plus, of course, we'll have cocktail chatter and John will explain why we say battleground. <laughs> Speaking of Wisconsin, we're coming, of course, to Madison. There's still a few tickets left to our live show in Madison on Wednesday, October 25th at the Majestic Theater in downtown Madison. We're going to be there on the 25th, it's a Wednesday. The show starts at 7.30. The VIP happy hour is sold out, but there are still tickets for the show. And we're trying to, to find a great guest. If you have an idea for a great guest for Madison, maybe a great cultural figure or political figure, we have some ideas. But if you have an idea, please let us know because we'd love to, to have a congenial guest. So send us an email at gabfest at slate.com. But go get your tickets, more importantly, to slate.com slash gabfest live. Slate.com slash gabfest live. So we will be in Madison, as we mentioned, and there's a stunning scheme afoot in Wisconsin where the Republicans who control the state legislature, thanks in part to the most aggressive gerrymander in the history of the world, are contemplating impeaching a new Supreme Court justice, Janet Protasiewicz, in order to prevent her from ruling on a case challenging the Wisconsin legislative maps. This is an incredibly twisty, kind of complicated story. I actually have, I've written out a whole summary of it, but maybe I shouldn't, maybe we should just get to it in the conversation rather than me trying to summarize it. Emily, you know, even as we're taping their sort of machinations, they have not started to impeach Protasiewicz. Maybe there may in fact end up being no effort to impeach her, but briefly situate us. Who is Protasiewicz and why is what's going on? So outrageous. I don't get angry about a lot of things. I'm very angry about this, this prospect of this. Yeah. I mean, this really feels like one of the more blamed examples we have of trying to change the rules of the democratic system in a way that in this case would benefit and protect the overweening power of Republicans in the state. Okay. So Wisconsin for context has a very gerrymandered legislature. It is so gerrymandered that even when Democrats won an election with, I think, 54%, they still only had something like 36% of the seats in the legislature. It just is a pretty unbreakable hold the Republicans have. And this was a gerrymander that went up to the Supreme Court. It's one of the cases on the path of the United States Supreme Court saying that federal courts can't address political gerrymandering when you are redistricting and you take a map and have it heavily favor a party. So also in Wisconsin, there's a Democratic governor and there right now, Tony Evers. 
And there had been a four to three Republican dominated Supreme Court. Then there was a very important election for the seat on the Supreme Court that Justice Protasiewicz now holds. It was the swing seat. It was an incredibly expensive election, real like political campaigning by judges, which, you know, is a kind of mixed bag as conceptually speaking, whether we should elect judges, what they should talk about, all those things, which we can discuss. Anyway, Justice Protasiewicz won. In a landslide. 11 points, which is a landslide in Wisconsin. Yeah. So at least in this election, the voters of Wisconsin were saying that they did not want Republican domination of the Supreme Court. And there are two huge issues that the Wisconsin Supreme Court is now poised to decide. One of them is about the gerrymander itself. It's about these maps and whether they are constitutional according to Wisconsin's state constitution. Previously, with a Republican-dominated Supreme Court, the justices said, yes, this is fine. Now another case will come up and they're going to revisit this question. The second issue is abortion. Wisconsin has a public that polls in support of abortion being legal all or most of the time. It has an abortion ban. It has zero abortion clinics operating. And so this court will also decide whether that ban is constitutional according to state law. The ban, incidentally, which is just it got it, it was a sort of moribund ban that was reactivated by the Dobbs decision. It was from the 1850s. Exactly. So it's a law from the 1850s that came alive once Dobbs. Yes, a trigger ban, not enacted recently. So in the course of campaigning, and this is what the impeachment effort is about, Judge Protasiewicz called the map rigged. This is the legislative electoral redistricting map. And she also talked a little bit about basically saying she believed in women's bodily autonomy. In both cases, she was careful to say that she wasn't trying to telegraph how she would vote in a future case. She was talking about her values. And that was her way of trying to campaign on the issues without taking a direct position in a pending case. And that's a kind of line that judges and justices campaigning for elections try not to cross. There have been other elections and other (laughs) situations in which conservative members of the Supreme Court have also taken positions on issues. And in fact, there is a United States Supreme Court ruling from the early 2000s in which there was a Minnesota law that tried to ban judges running from election from talking about political or legal issues that were in dispute. And the U.S. Supreme Court at the time said that that ban on speech of Minnesota's was unconstitutional. The judges had the First Amendment right to speak when they're campaigning, and that indeed, if you're going to have judicial elections, you have to make room for them to be able to talk about issues. Interestingly, that case is a 5-4 split, and it's really conservatives versus liberals. It's a Justice Scalia opinion, with Justice Ginsburg in dissent trying to say, no, no, we should have these much more limited speech rules for judges to differentiate them from political candidates running for election. And so that's the sort of meat of the dispute here. We haven't even gotten to the actual dispute, Do, honestly. I know. <laughs> just like, it's so complicated. I was listening to CityCast Madison, the podcast that we, my company makes in Madison, and it was an interview with Jordan Ellenberg, who's a mathematician at the University of Wisconsin, who noted that they there was a computer simulation of a million different maps for the state of Wisconsin, a million different legislative maps, and they could not find a map that was more biased in favor of Republicans than the one that has been made, which is astonishing. So what's at issue here that's making you really mad, since I seem to have failed to introduce this properly, is the Republican legislature now trying to impeach this liberal justice before she has ruled in a single case, 
arguing that because she said the map was rigged and made these comments about abortion, that she is telegraphed her decision about a pending case in a way that is judicial misconduct. The second piece is that she was she received donations from the Democratic Party, and because the Democratic Party will benefit from the improved map, it's an in-kind contribution. But what gets David so exercised, I hazard to guess, is the kind of hypocrisy stacked on hypocrisy. I mean, so not only are there other justices who have received contributions, not only from the party, but the chief justice of the Supreme Court in Wisconsin received donations from business interests and then did not recuse herself from cases involving those business interests. Then for the last many years, the Republicans in Wisconsin have worked pretty hard and effectively to water down the recusal and campaign finance rules. So they have been on a successful campaign to make it easier to get around conflicts and not require recusals. And so there are not only the instances with respect to the chief justice, but other judges that have that are worse, that are actual, like this is, you know, Protosewitz hasn't ruled yet. This is kind of a guess about something. Whereas in these other instances, judges have received donations and made judgments on cases that are material to the people who gave the donations. And it has been not something that's bothered Republicans. But now that the politics make it necessary, they're suddenly getting very pure. I Actually, that's not what bothers me. The hypocrisy doesn't bother me. I mean, it Boo. bothers me. It, it is the, the hypocrisy is wrong and it's, it's annoying and it is hypocritical. That's why we call it hypocrisy. But really what bothers me actually is this idea that there is a, there's a problem in Wisconsin politics, which is that because the Republicans have controlled the legislature. They have rigged the system in such a way that they cannot lose, even though the people of the state don't want them to have the kind of power that they have. Like the people have expressed this over and over again. And so there's one check on that. And that check is, is through another branch of government. That other branch of government is judicial. And the idea that the legislature can use chicanery and the supermajority, which it got through its rigged system to prevent it from being policed to prevent there being any check on it is incredibly disturbing. Like it, the system doesn't work if you can't remedy wrongs in the branches. The support for the idea that when you said the people have voiced opposition to this, I think the most compelling fact is that Republicans have lost 14 of 17 statewide races. So in addition to the facts Emily gave about the success of Democrats getting votes, but the lack of success in winning seats because of the way it's gerrymandered. The fact that the GOP has gone 13 for 17 statewide is a pretty powerful figure. But aren't those two connected, David? Because if you're just playing Calvin ball, if you're just making up the rules every time to maintain your power, whether it's in the gerrymander and the seats, or whether it's the rules you apply to judges for the purposes of retaining your power and asserting your power. Isn't that the same, all the same bundle? I mean, I agree, you know, you can have to light a trigger finger for hypocrisy, but in this case, it feels like it's all a part of essentially running the show in a way that makes up the rules as you go along with the only constant being uh, maintaining power. Yeah, no, sure, sure. I just, I guess I just want to note that the power is like, there are lots of people who are hypocritical. Not all people who are hypocritical are using it to completely 
warp and distort the institutions of an entire state to just to benefit their partisan goods. I mean, there's this there's this line about gerrymandering that gerrymandering what gerrymandering does is allows politicians to choose their voters. And now I guess what they're saying is it doesn't just allow us to choose our voters. It allows us to choose our judges, too. Like, that's what they're getting. And there's this crazy possibility, right? Yes, crazy, <laughs> crazy. I was hoping we'd get to this. I yeah, so that the Wisconsin House could vote to impeach Justice Protasiewicz. And then instead of having a trial in the Senate, which they'd have to win by two thirds, they would just delay the trial in the Senate because there's a rule in Wisconsin that if you've been impeached by the House, you can't hear any cases. And so this would be a way by merely using this procedural mechanism of delay that the Republicans could try to make it so there are only six justices on the Supreme Court. And then they would switch three to three and presumably not vote to overturn the maps or the abortion ban. And you say it's a crazy thing, but it's, isn't it the point? (laughs) I mean, in other words, it's not just crazy. It's the goal. Right. I mean, when I was reading the material, it seemed that way. It was like, well, that's the plan. And then I guess the question is, what's going to stop them? I mean, there has been, you know, significant criticism, the Democratic Party's going on a major, you know, multi-million dollar PR campaign against this, which then, of course, led the Republicans to say, see, we said this was all about the Democrats. And yet the legislature maintains its power. And right now, as I understand it, the only thing that is preventing trial and conviction in the Wisconsin Senate is the vote of one Republican senator who is saying... I am not excited about this. And they only have exactly two thirds, which is the supermajority they would need to actually convict her in the Senate. Emily, before we leave this topic, how could the U.S. Supreme Court end up involved in this, if at all? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think there are some First Amendment questions floating around in this, like especially if they just prevented her from hearing any cases because there was this vote to impeach in the House, but no Senate conviction in a trial. That seems like, you know, once you have a First Amendment question, you then can go to federal court and eventually you could end up in front of the U.S. Supreme Court. There could be some due process 14th Amendment claim I can't think of that they could try to bring. But honestly, this is a Wisconsin law problem. And, you know, one remedy for this would be that her colleagues would not go along with it, that they would find this illegal under Wisconsin law. That actually seems like it would be a really good remedy. Of course, that would demand some principle from them to stand together to defend the institution. And I have no idea if there's any real interest in doing that on the Republican side of the court. John, do you think that judges should be allowed to express opinions about issues when they're campaigning? I mean, set aside the issue of whether judges should campaign, which is a a bigger issue. Yeah, that's the bigger issue. I mean, you know, one of the things that interested me about this case is that the Speaker of the Assembly, Robin Voss, said, wait a minute, you can't have a judge who says the maps are rigged and then go be on a trial and and say, oh, and now I'm going to judge fairly. And I think that stands to reason. The problem is that's not the trigger for impeachment. The trigger for impeachment is corrupt conduct in office or for crimes and misdemeanors. And that point I made earlier about the Democratic Party benefiting from these cases, the Democratic Party is not a, Emily, give me the right term here, claimant or is not. Yeah, they're not suing. I mean, yes, they will benefit, but they're not suing. And therefore, unlike cases in which other judges have been given direct donations by people who are engaged in cases and there hasn't been a problem for Republicans. That's not analogous in this case. I don't think they should be running for office. And I don't think they should be talking about issues. Even in Wisconsin, there's a 
there's an allowance for be, you're allowed to talk about things that are of the moment. How are voters going to make their decision about you if you're mom on anything that's happening in the moment? And if something that's happening in the moment happens to be something you might later rule on, you have to be careful about making any promises or pledges, but you, you know, you can't just sit mute before the issues of the day. On the other hand, we have so much politics and everything. And obviously, if you made them appointed by a governor, that would bring politics into it, into it too. But I just think hooking up all of the branches of government to the electorate is is bad. And if you're going to do it, being able to speak on something that's going to come before you, you run into the problem you have right here, whether it's legal or not in Wisconsin, it does create appearance issues that it would be nice to not have. I feel like this is a genuinely hard question. About the speech part, I, well, the reason I'm torn is that it does seem like it can become an appearance of impropriety, or at least it is telegraphing a candidate's ideas about law in this way that makes law seem a lot like politics, or maybe just the same as politics. On the other hand, in the context of federal court nominations, we now have people saying nothing about anything, right? I mean, the Supreme Court nominees get up there and they won't even say like whether they think Brown versus Board, the school desegregation case from 1954, was correctly decided. And it just becomes ludicrous. Like there's a line in, I think, a memo that Justice Rehnquist wrote that Scalia cited in that decision. It's called Republican Party of Minnesota versus White, that early 2000s case. And Rehnquist said, you don't have to be a tabula rasa. Like if to pretend to be a blank slate, if you, then you're not qualified. It doesn't mean you're not biased. It would mean that you haven't done anything or taken any views. There's a sort of silliness there that always bothers me. And the kind of increased refusal to answer any questions, I don't think has helped those confirmation hearings. And then it means when a candidate like Protasewicz talks about her values, it seems more of a problem as opposed to kind of part of a continuum because we're habituated to the idea that these people don't say anything about anything. I want to give a huge thank you to our Slate Plus listeners. Because of listeners like you, we have been able to keep doing the GabFest for so long. And you as a Slate Plus member get lots of great stuff for your subscription. Bonus segments on every episode of the GabFest, special discounts to our live shows, no hitting the paywall on the Slate site, a lot more. And this week for our Slate Plus segment, we're going to talk about the bizarre story involving a Democratic candidate for Virginia State House who became national news this week when Republican operatives leaked evidence that she had sex with her husband and collected tips for having sex with her husband on the streaming platform Chatterbait. So if you're a member, you'll get to hear that segment. Thank you. Enjoy it. If you're not a member, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. That's slate.com slash GabFest Plus. This episode of the GabFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura Frames, in the notes that I have here, says moms like Aura frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her Aura frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an Aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. 
Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Speaking of bizarre impeachments undertaken for tangential purposes, welcome to the Joe Biden impeachment carnival. I very much enjoyed, I don't know if you guys did, John Fetterman's reaction to the news that House Speaker Kevin McCarthy would be opening an impeachment inquiry. about this news that uh, Speaker McCarthy has formally launched an impeachment inquiry, or has said he's going to... Oh my God, really? Oh my gosh, you know, oh, it's devastating. (laughs) Ooh, don't do it. Please don't do it. Oh no, oh no. John, what is Kevin McCarthy doing and why? Well, he is facing a version of the same problem that faced him when he uh, was elevated to become speaker. He's got a conference with a very small margin and a group of Trump-aligned Republicans who are pressuring him on two fronts. One, to impeach Joe Biden for what they say is Biden's profiting from business deals with his son and then using his IRS and his FBI to cover up the investigation of that. And then he's also getting pressure from them to unwind the deal that McCarthy made with Biden on spending as part of the debt ceiling negotiations in negotiations to keep the government funded. Government funding runs out at the end of September. The theory was that by saying yes to impeachment, McCarthy buys goodwill that will give him more room to negotiate on spending. It doesn't appear to have worked at all. They're talking about trying to bounce McCarthy from the chair if he simply agrees to a continuing resolution, which essentially usually just funds government at current levels until they can work out the details, which is a traditional snooze bar method we've talked about many times over the years. This part of the conference is is threatening him even to take that step. Things have gotten so bad that on Wednesday, uh, the House couldn't even agree on a rule to begin debating the Defense Appropriations Act. The rule is the thing you need to even get started on the debating of the thing. So it's like, it's not the debate you have in the room. It's how you decide to open the door to get in the room. And they couldn't even agree to that. So it's a mess. Um, And he's got to work it out. And it's all happening in public. And he does not look like he has much power to change the course of events. and, And just to be clear, If he got a bunch of Democrats, he could get Democrats to vote for continuing resolution probably with no problem, right? Yeah, yes. I mean, it depends. Democrats are happy to watch him flail about. Now, on the other hand, obviously, Democrats, you know, as Joe Biden pointed out with the debt ceiling, I think this is also part of the current situation. Bad economy, bad things happening in public. Presidents tend to get blamed. Not everybody's going to go follow, you know, so there's not no damn, there's there's political downside to monkeying around. But yes, Democrats could easily join McCarthy, do a continuing resolution, and just kind of work this out over time. Although the issues are obviously considerable because there's this question of whether the funding levels that they agreed to as a part of the debt ceiling negotiations still are in place. And uh, there's that question. And then there's money that Biden wants to add to current appropriations for things like relief in Hawaii, funding for Ukraine, that that has to be debated. So it's not like a CR would end the the debate. But I guess what what I want to say is, like, if you look in the Senate, the Senate voted 85 to something to basically to have a CR. The Senate is not having a, a fight over this. And it's because Democrats and Republicans got together and most of them are voting for it. And it's not stopping business. 
the Republicans, as I understand it, maybe I'm wrong, the Freedom Caucus is saying, not only will we not join a continuing resolution right now, we will not accept one that you do with Democrats. So if you go ahead and do something with Democrats, you're out. That's a betrayal too. Totally. And I can't remember what the verb is for a motion to vacate the chair. I guess bring a motion to vacate the chair, which essentially tries to bounce him from the office. It's a kind of a silly move because the only way you could really do that is if Democrats joined you and then who are they going to elect? I mean, there's no alternative to McCarthy. So it's a, it just messes things up further. But that's what they've threatened is if he does a CR at all, th- they'll try to bounce him from his seat. I mean, the basic dynamic here is the same it's been since he became Speaker, where you have a few very right-wing members of Congress, of the House, trying to hold everybody hostage, including him, right? Yeah, yeah although I, I, everyone always sits and blames the Freedom Caucus, and sure, go ahead and blame these people, who, incidentally, it's weird, like, they don't even publish a list of who the members are. It's like it's like they're in a secret cell. They're in the Communist Party and. 1932 in New York City or something like only a few of them are publicly identified. So no one knows how many members there are. But that's an aside. You know, it's an incredibly right wing caucus. It's not like that all these other people who are supporting McCarthy are all Mitt Romney's. They are also extremely right wing. They're just not quite as explosive and willing to destroy the institution. Yes, they're not interested in bringing down government at every turn. Just to go to the impeachment for a second, Emily, why is impeachment so important to this tranche of the far right? Well, first of all, I think there's this sort of tit for tat with President Trump, this idea that, you know, the previous Democratic majority House abused its power in impeaching Trump. And so then they have to go out after Biden. And then there's this obsession with Hunter Biden and this whole idea of like some crime syndicate going on. And there's been, you know, very little evidence of any hard or spiable kind that has come out in support of these conspiracy theories. And so now they're going on what seems like a fishing expedition in which they can now subpoena the banking records of people in the Biden family. They can just like go look for the evidence they don't have yet, as opposed to having some evidence up front that then launches such an inquiry because you're trying to get more evidence and get to the bottom of something that you actually know is a real thing. Yeah. I mean, even if you even if you posit that the very worst things said about Hunter Biden are true, they would still literally be penny ante. And I mean that in the penny ante in the money term, penny ante compared to the self-dealing and family sleaze and corruption of the Trump family during the Trump presidency. I mean, that's that's definitely a big part of this is McCarthy's getting pressure from Trump and Trump aligned. So direct pressure, he's been in, Trump has been in contact with Republicans, but also he doesn't need to be. In other words, this is seen as a kind of proof of your fealty to that cause if you take up the issue of impeachment. And we should note that the case is weak. You have plenty of Republicans in the Senate who are saying there's no evidence here. And it's worth noting that you know, the bar for high crimes and misdemeanors is different than what is also true, which is that Joe Biden has said stuff that turned out not to be true about this. I mean, he said his son didn't make any money with China in the China deal. And his son under oath testified that he did make money. We don't know that Joe Biden knew at the time he said that, that Hunter Biden was making Well, when you declare things to be certain and don't, don't question me because I'm unassailably right, and then you turn out to be wrong. And you're the president, it's bad. I mean, the charitable view is that Hunter Biden is a mess and Joe Biden is 
as his dad, loyal and concerned and tends to be really defensive and kind of try to dismiss these problems that are real problems going on, right? Right, but in any other instance, when somebody declares something so certainly and then it turns out not to be the case, you wouldn't say, oh, let's stop investigating. Now, that doesn't mean you you get to go all the way to impeachment. One other part of this uh, that's interesting to me is that in January of 2020, the Trump Justice Department Office of Legal Counsel declared that impeachment inquiries by the House are invalid unless the chamber takes a formal vote to authorize them. So basically, McCarthy and the three committees already investigating this have have sort of blown that off, but it probably doesn't just go away. So that that still sits out there. And also you have a member of the Freedom Caucus, even in the House, saying basically these issues don't rise to the level of impeachment and also other members saying it's politically stupid. So it's a real pickle. Do you guys think from a political perspective, John, that either impeachment or a government shutdown have clear political winners and losers? Assuming an impeachment inquiry doesn't discover grotesque behavior on the part of the Bidens. Right. I think that the interpretation Emily gave of a president trying to kind of think the best of the totally shambolic behavior of his son at the time, probably uh, on the impeachment front, is the mo- one that's most likely to obtain, especially if if the all of this investigating so far has only come up with kind of hearsay I mean, there have been those inconsistencies. Both Biden said that his son didn't make any money. He did. Biden said, I wasn't involved. He was there when phone calls were being made. And he, as the last politician, knows better than anybody the power of proximity and the sales power of, you know, having your dad as powerful as he is in the room. So let's not pretend that he didn't understand that and that that's nothing because it's not nothing. However, Impeachment, like it just isn't it isn't close. And when you have charismatic dissenters, Republicans in the party saying this is both politically bad and as a matter of law and standard doesn't meet the test. I think that's politically that would mean this is politically bad for Republicans because impeachments have been bad for the parties that have engaged in them. Maybe not as much for Trump as they were for Republicans impeaching Clinton. But I think it's so on the shutdown, I don't know. I think on the shutdown, it's a little bit more mixed because Biden seems to take on the, the political pain for anything that happens that's messy and that, that might hurt the economy. And so while you can pencil it out that, that this is all the result of Kevin McCarthy not having control of his own conference, uh, that may not be the way it sorts for people. All right. Last question. Emily, do you think in six months that Kevin McCarthy is still speaker given all of this mishigas around him? I sort of feel like weirdly the answer is yes, because I don't know what the alternative is. Like he just gets to take all these hits and bruises and then is like still standing at the end of the day, weirdly. Yeah. I mean, who else would want the job, could get the job? Yeah, I agree. Let us talk about the really interesting article in the New York Times about polling in battleground states. Nate Cohn, who's the Times polling guru, made a case that the Electoral College may be more forgiving of Biden than the national polls, which are dead even between him and Trump right now, than the national polls would suggest. And also, we let's talk, as we're talking about this, about the, the sort of efflorescence of writing about Biden's age and Biden needs to replace Kamala on the ticket and they need a new nominee. And everyone is writing about that this week as well. So I think these two things go hand in hand. So, John, what is the nature of this argument that Biden is in better shape in the battleground states than the national polling? 
I think it basically argues that where Trump is doing better, which is with non-white voters, he's doing better in states that don't matter uh, for the presidency. And there's other data that supports that, which is that in the midterms, the Democrats held their ground in the battleground states and did better there than the national vote polls would have suggested. The Republicans won the national vote, just as the polls predicted. And if there was a connection between the national numbers and battlegrounds, you would have expected a red wave. That didn't happen. Nate also looks at the Times-Siena polls over the last year, which shows that Biden seems to be doing as well as he did in 2020 in the states where Democrats did better than average in the midterms, and that includes all the battleground states. So you take the first piece, which is there's a delinking between national and battleground, and Democrats did well in the midterms, and there's a chance that midterms are predictive of the next presidential. Then you have the Times polling, which shows that Biden still has stability in the battleground states, and so does the Democratic Party, even though Biden is showing weakness outside of the battleground states which is interesting, and particularly because it's in constituencies that are key to the Democratic Party, but it's only interesting so far as it affects the actual election, and if it's not happening in battleground states, it's interesting, but not determinative. And then finally, there are, he points to state polls. There aren't many of them in the battleground states, and I should just add, yowza, careful with the state polls. Basically, this is super, super early tea leaf reading that has a utility that I've probably already expired because we're so far away and so many things are still up in the air. But it's sort of like, huh, Biden's doing awfully, but he's not doing awfully in this specific way. And if that holds, this will be something to watch. So that third point is that Biden is doing better in the state polls than you would expect. And those states, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, battleground states are the ones that'll be required for him to get reelected. Emily, did you find it surprising slash interesting slash compelling. The fact that there there seems to be such a surge of non-white support for Trump in places like Florida, Texas, California, and New York, none of which, as John just pointed out so clearly, is up for grabs in the presidential election, but that that there is this real shift in, in the composition, at least as regards to Trump and the composition of support with non-white voters. Yeah, I don't I mean, so first of all, we should say that most black voters support Biden and a majority of Latino voters also support Biden, but it's just not the overwhelming numbers that it was before. I haven't read anything that gives me like a solid explanation for what's going on here. There's some interesting speculation about it. So one idea is that these are somewhat socially conservative voters and that the way the Democratic priority expresses its progressive priorities is out of sync on issues like crime and education and, you know, some cultural issues as well. I don't think we know that's what's happening, but I understand why people are kind of grabbing onto that. You know, another possibility is that inflation and some of the problems of the economy are affecting these voters in specific ways that make them want a new leader. But I mean, yeah, I do find it surprising given how just like racist Trump has been in so many ways. (laughs) But I think people see this in a more holistic way and they, you know, there's also a kind of class dynamic here, which has to do with education polarization, right? The idea that as the Democratic Party becomes more and more oriented toward college graduates, that the way, again, the way it expresses its values is alienating to people who don't have that level of education. And there are more Black and Hispanic voters in that 
pool. And so there's just this kind of alienation going on that's shaking up the dynamic. It's quite true that Biden is still winning with these voters. But in the dynamic, as they've played out in presidential politics, the Democrats, because they lose white voters, need to overperform by a massive amount with voters of color. But that connects to a second point, which I'm basically stealing from Terrence Woodbury of Hit Strategies, who was on the 538 podcast, which is that the, the deterioration of the of that part of the Democratic base has been happening for a while. It's not just a Biden thing. And it's a deterioration that comes from the result of like, it's really hard to hold on to a constituency that large and win them by that much for that long. And then a third point, which also is from Terrence, which is basically like it's early and that the, the voters in these constituencies, though they might be showing up in a poll, might be rented, that the Biden message to those particular groups hasn't gotten through but can get through both because the Democratic Party knows how to talk to their own voters and these some of the voters that might be not showing up in polls might not be super paying a lot of attention to the campaign right now. And so it's too early to tell whether this will have any real effect on the actual election. I mean, I think any person, any person who supports Trump, any additional person who supports Trump, it's a tragedy for the country. But as a general matter, I don't think it's a terrible thing for Democrats to have to earn Black and Hispanic votes in different ways and for the Republicans to be seeking to earn Black and Hispanic votes. Because definitely, it's, I think it's been, a, it's been a, a bad dynamic in American politics for the past you know, 25, 30 years. Well, when you can take a constituency been, for granted, that constituency can get less. And I, you know, when I've talked to a Black organizers and people who think about this, like that's a deep frustration in this dynamic, right? And also these swing voters might not be the Solomonic voter who sits down with the, you know, position papers of the two candidates and thinks about the presidency and the history of America and then makes a wise decision about which of the two to pick. You know, it might very well be low information voters who don't think the system works very much at all. They think the system kind of sucks and I'm not sure I want to vote at all. And so if you're if you feel that way, Donald Trump is super appealing because he wants to blow up the system and he's not of the system. And by the way, all the people who've been selling you this BS over the years, including the people in our profession, like they haven't made your lives any better. Right. So if they're squawking about this guy, Trump, maybe that's proof that exactly he's the guy to vote for. So that all seems pretty reasonable. Well said, John. Yeah. Why do you guys think this is the week when everyone decided to write about Biden's age problem again? You have Ross Douthat and Brett Stevens and Josh Barrow and others. We're bored. Because we're lazy, super, super lazy. And also it's this cycle, which is like he walks and talks in a way that makes it very easy. And then people who want to do polling in order to create the next round of stories, ask about the age thing. And then the age thing becomes a thing to write about. And then people see the age thing and they talk about it. And their pieces hearing people talk about the age thing. There's a circle. It's, of course, a legitimate issue, super legitimate issue. But it um, is also a part of the way in which the presidency is covered, which is we look for the keys under the lamppost. We cover the thing that's right in front of us. And so when Biden gives a, a wandering answer, in public, we decide to define the entire race and presidency by that moment. And so something that is vital and crucial and important gets massively outsized as if it's the whole bundle. 
Well, also, it's something everyone can see, right? The bigger question of how Biden's age affects the presidency, whether it's operating effectively, whether his leadership is on core, you know, all those questions that I think matter much more for the country, those are like harder to suss out. Whereas like you can just look at him on the screen at a TV conference and decide what you think. Uh Totally. And it's all right. So it's all theater review. And the thing is, actually, Emily, you're, you're right. They are hard to suss out. But I mean, <laughs> I wrote a whole book about it and the sussing's not even happening. So nobody's saying, like, is there a is there a cognitive drop off in his decision making? Is there you know, where is the evidence and the things that actually matter to the office? And the reason I think this is important is if, in fact, this were the way we were engaging with this issue, it touches on so many interesting things. It touches on, you know, public performance. How much of a part of the job is that? Because that's surely where this is having its biggest issue. It goes on, what is the presidency about and what do you need mental clarity for and the kinds of decisions you need in, to make in a presidency? And therefore, how does age affect that? Nobody really talks about those. The other is the piece of restraint and wisdom that comes with age and particularly what you guys talked about with Frank Four, which is when you're a politician, you operate in a political space and having experience and wisdom matters in that, just like it does in every other human endeavor. And so that's worth talking about. And then the question of decline in the future, talking about the age isn't just about age in this moment. It's about vice presidents and next terms. All those things would be worth talking about, but nobody is in this context. And final point, if you're going to talk about all that stuff, then there are 90,000 other things to talk about, about what's actually required in the presidency that nobody talks about and treats as seriously. If you're a somebody who's concerned about Biden's age and and do want to think about it in a more sophisticated way, I would recommend you read Frank Ford's book because it is about how he carries out the duties of office in a, in a deeper and more detailed way, in specific way. And I think it, it gets to some of the points that John just made. Just to get us out of this, how do you all feel about Mitt Romney's announcement that he is retiring? As, and he took two shots. He took shots at Trump and Biden on the way out, basically saying, time for new leadership you know, these old guys aren't getting it done and and put himself in that category of old guy. I'm going to miss that. I'm going to miss Mitt Romney. I'm going to miss him. I, I really feel like he has led a life of of admirable public service and and carried himself with such grace and dignity and taken a huge amount of abuse. You know, I don't regret having voted for Barack Obama in 2012. I think Barack Obama was an excellent president and better president than Romney would have been. But I'm more in the loss of this kind of Republican. There are fewer now with Romney leaving. I think it's very unlikely he'll be replaced by somebody who is as committed to service and as thoughtful and as as commonsensical as he has been. What did you both think of the excerpt from McKay Coppins's biography of him in which, I mean, Romney is like burning the hell out of Mitch McConnell by repeating things that he says McConnell told him that are very incisive and anti-Trump. And then I thought there was just this really quite interesting set of deliberations that went into Romney's vote to impeach Trump. It was much more, I just hadn't thought about the idea that he would have been genuinely torn and uncertain about what to do. I have not read the excerpt yet. I just started it this morning. Also implicit in his departure at the AG is, is not just a shot at Trump and Biden, but at, but at McConnell. I mean, you know, yes. and McConnell's age is still a leader. I mean, whether that was his intent or not. And the the exchange that Romney had with Angus King that on the 2nd of January t terrified him about a, an attack on the 6th. And then he texted Mitch McConnell, who never responded, about 
the kind of attack that ultimately came is also quite chilling. First of all, it's going to be a fascinating book because you have somebody who has all of the character qualities that you described, David, and also that movie of Romney's campaign in 2012, which was a behind the scenes look at his campaign. So good. I think is consistent with that portrayal. And but and but I think what McKay's book is about Romney trying to maintain those characteristics, but then also making choices without anybody pressuring him to do kind of what he knew wasn't right, to engage in the political process, to take the endorsement from Donald Trump when he ran in 2012, to make excuses for himself that allowed him to be an ambitious politician. And what we are facing now in the Republican Party is many people in the party who used to pride themselves on having an understanding of power versus principle have just turn the knob, if this metaphor works, all the way to the power setting, you know, on the equalizer where they used to sort of do a few things that 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 got them power, but they also kept a pretty high moral compass. They've basically put in with the power and Romney did not do that, but he has failings and wrestles with them in his life. So it's like the, it's the politician's dilemma. And so that'll be, to me, one of the things that's that's really fascinating and interesting. And Romney as the guy studying everything to the, this, the process of discernment in the Mormon church was something that really interested me when I was covering him as a candidate. There is a methodical way of making decisions and thinking things through that, that felt like the impeachment was consistent with. And also when I interviewed him for my book about the presidency and leadership, because he was a guy who was so excited to actually try to run the presidency in the way that would make some sense. And he'd thought a great deal about it. He, when I came to talk to him, he had read the piece I'd done in the Atlantic and taken notes and had points of criticism and rebuttal. Like he thinks through stuff. So it felt consistent with that as well. Mitt Romney reads John Dickerson. Need we say more? Yeah, that's really what that story was all. Did I back into that nicely (laughs) enough? Yeah. Okay. Thank you. On the video, you'll see me moonwalking into that point. Um, (laughs) <laughs> Can I go back to age for a second, just quickly? So we've established that there are legitimate ways and reasonable things to raise about the age question in the abstract and with respect just to Joe Biden. Okay, now, there's also the fact that presidential campaigns happen in comparison. And so if the leader of the Republican Party is Donald Trump, and if the faraway frontrunner is Donald Trump, then it seems reasonable to apply the same kinds of tests to Trump. And, you know, is he cognitively fine? Seems like he pretty much is, except that he maintains thoroughly this delusion that he won the last presidential race, which if you're going to talk about whether the person has the mental capacity to operate in the office, if you're incapable of shaking a delusion and it runs your life, that's probably not great. Are his public performances a problem? Well, they were pretty rambling. And, you know, the leaders of his party at every top position, say that he used his public role to incite an attack on the U.S. Capitol. So that's probably more dangerous in a president than telling a dumb story about a dog-faced pony soldier. Is he in decline? There's no evidence that he, well, maybe there's a little evidence from some of the people who are real anti-Trumpers, but, you know, he seems pretty much the same guy. But I'm not sure in Donald Trump's case, being the same guy is exactly a positive with respect to his reelection. And on the question of restraint that comes from wisdom, I mean, there's obviously very few instances in which he's shown the kind of restraint you need in a president, which is to sublimate your own personal desires for the greater good of the country and the Constitution. So if you use those same metrics that are a part of the conversation with Biden and apply them to his opponent, 
I think that's also necessary. Let's go to cocktail chatter. Emily, when you are sitting with the Romneys having a non-alcoholic cocktail, what are you going to be chattering to them about? I read two really good books in the last few weeks. The first one was recommended by my friends Rachel and James. It's called The Knockout Queen. It's by Rufy Thorpe. It's not brand new, but they recommended it to me as a kind of follow-on to Demon Copperhead. Like It's sort of about a similar kind of kid in terms of his social class and where he's coming from. Different environment. He's a different kid, but it's just really well-written, thought-provoking book. So it's a novel, The Knockout Queen by Rufy Thorpe. And then the other book I just finished, which I keep thinking about, is The Vaster Wilds by Lauren Groff. My next, I'm about to start that today. Yeah, it's so powerful and vivid. And uh, this description of this girl who escapes into wilderness from the Jamestown settlement. And that's not a spoiler. That's all evident very quickly. It's about her experience of growing up in this crazy, terrible world. And then her relationship with nature as she wanders this wilderness really liked that book, The Vaster Wilds by Lauren Groff. I find you people in all of your reading you're able to get done a real bummer to me because I'm so envious of it. You work a lot more than I do, though. I know. I know. But I feel like all the stuff I read is evanescent. I need to... Books are pretty short, too. Yeah, well, I like short. I'm reading at the moment the journals of John Cheever, which a friend of mine, Christine Colson, who is also an author, who has a book coming out called The One Woman Show. But anyway, they are actually, obviously, John Cheever was, you know, a deeply troubled person, deeply, deeply troubled. And they are not a pick me up. But his descriptions of things and his sense of observation and use of language is amazing. Also short entries. So, you know, you can read them. Anyway, my chatter is one, those of you who watch CBS Sunday Morning, feel free to watch it again on this Sunday. I have an interview with Tim Cook of Apple. I went down to Texas to interview him last week. So I would hope you'd check that out. The other one is that 50% of the top 100 songs on the Billboard chart are in the minor key, which is many people associate with sad songs. And that is a change from the turn of the century when 30% of such songs were in a minor key, of the top songs were in a minor key. And in 1960, where only 13% are in the minor key. And so it turns out, and this is based on the work of Chris Dalla Riva, who is a music data analyst. And the number one, according to Spotify, search term this summer for songs among teens was the word sad. So I don't know quite what to make of this. I love songs in the minor key, including songs that are way over yonder in the minor key. But I thought that was a fascinating finding, and I want people to weigh in with their wisdom. Ah, interesting. That's a good cocktail chatter. Thank you. My chatter will not be <laughs> not be good. <laughs> I feel that one of my duties here on the GapFest is to recommend great food. So I recommended Cheese It Snaps the other day, one of the real innovations in, in snack foods. And I have discovered another incredible food, which I want to recommend to all of you. It's called Zong Sauce, Z-H-O-N-G. It's by a company called Fly by Jing. And it is, it's really hard to describe. It is a mix of sugar and mushrooms and garlic and spices and soy sauce. And it is sweet. It's spicy. It's tangy. It's incredibly umami forward. And it's... (laughs) It is spectacular on everything. I put it on uh, scrambled egg. Did you say umami forward? Yeah, yeah, but I was saying that in a kind of 
ironic sure, sure. voice, but also serious. I know, serious. but I wanted to I just think it's kind grab of onto it I for a moment. I think you totally coined a phrase. Yeah. Also, I'm buying this as we speak. It's so yeah. good. It's only eleven ninety nine. I noticed it has a very distinctive packaging, and it was out. Uh, Wait, I got spicy chili crisp. There are a lot of different kinds, David. Well, the, so, so fly by Jing. No, spicy chili crisp is so. So this company makes spicy chili crisp, and this is this you kind of comes that. out of the family of spicy chili crisp. Their chili crisp is delicious, but they also make something called zong sauce, which is a variation. Which is not it's not chili crisp at all. It's smoother, but it also has this quality of making anything you put it on taste so much better. Okay, but any. zong sauce is what I want because there are a lot of things yes. right. this company makes. Yeah. Yes. Anne was having Zong's sauce last night, actually. Oh, lucky Anne. I did have a thought that you could put it on ice cream and it would probably be good. I've never done that. I think you can. I think that's been done. Hmm. Seriously, I'm not. I, I think that's been done. Well, Gapfest listeners, get the Zong sauce. Emily, get yours before it sells out. I know. From the, all the Gapfest listeners who will be hitting the webs to get it. I think it's carried at Whole Foods. I think I first got it at Whole Foods. Listeners, you've got chatters. Is your chatter as delicious as Zong Sauce? Is it as good a read as those books Emily recommended? We will listen to your chatter when you email them to us at gabfest at slate.com or tweet them to us at slategabfest. And we've just gotten so, so many good ones. And this week's listener chatter comes from Ben in Minneapolis. And would note that the chatter that Ben sent in, several other listeners also sent in the same listener chatter. So what a great cocktail party that must have been. Everyone talking about the same subject. Hi, GabFest. My name is Ben from Minneapolis, Minnesota. I want to share with you an article my wife just shared with me. The article, titled The Mystery of the Bloomfield Bridge by Tyler Viggen, narrates his journey to find out why the federal government built a pedestrian bridge over a Minnesota suburban freeway in 1959 that now only connects a Taco Bell and a warehouse. His journey for the truth behind this bridge has some hilarious twists and turns, from key clues in a ninth grader's essay from 1951 to a bunker he travels to in Missouri. The author will stop at nothing to find the truth. It's a quirky read that uncovers some little-known history and is a lot of fun to read. Enjoy! our show for today. The Gabfest is produced today by Jared Downey. Shana has a well-deserved week off of some sort. Our researcher is Julie Hugan. Our theme music is by They Might Be Giants. Ben Richmond, Senior Director of Podcast Ops. Alicia Montgomery, VP of Audio for Slate. Please email us your chatters at gabfest at slate.com. Please come to our live show at Madison. You can get a ticket for that show at slate.com slash gabfest live not many left act fast for emily bazelon and john dickerson and david plotz thanks for listening we'll talk to you next week hi slate plus what a crazy story about susanna gibson so susanna gibson is a democrat who is a nurse and she is running for a seat in the virginia house of delegates the the lower house in the virginia legislature and that is a very contentious House. It's all the seats are up for election in a couple months. There's a huge Republican effort to hold control of it and to take the state Senate and to give Governor Youngkin Republican majorities everywhere. And the seat that that Susanna Gibson is running for is a very tight race in the Richmond suburbs. 
And so what happens? The Washington Post gets a tip from a Republican operative or gets sent information from a Republican operative that Susanna Gibson and her husband have been performing for online audiences on a sex site chatterbait. And they've been doing live sex and collecting tips from audience members who are watching them. They have almost 6,000 subscribers on chatterbait. And they were the post was sent a bunch of these tapes and the post ran a story and i guess ap ran a story talking about the fact that susanna gibson and her husband were performing this live sex susanna gibson responded by saying this was an illegal invasion of her privacy designed to humiliate her and her family and that it wouldn't intimidate her and silence her and that she claimed that this is in fact a revenge porn case that she's being targeted criminally by the release of this these tapes and the release of this information about her it is wow is this a fascinating case is it okay that the washington post published a story about Susanna gibson's and her husband's sex business yeah they were sort of tiptoeing around the publication and they pointed out that the site wasn't password protected and so the notion that this was illegal to divulge this etc seemed to be of overblown. If you were performing in a club, if you were performing in a private club. That was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.